You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Blaine Leeds, who's been in the dental industry for several decades and has recently turned his head towards the research on sleep. Now, you may be asking yourself, how on earth do those two things connect together? Well, Dr. Leeds explains it very well in this conversation, as well as what he does in a day-to-day in his dental practice, how dental health has changed over the years, how AI, artificial intelligence, can help dental diagnoses in the future. And then we delve into some of the conditions one can get from poor sleep that can be affected by poor dental health, or actually even the shape of one's jaw. So if you want to hear all about that, continue listening. And of course, check out the show notes. You can find Dr. Leeds' website, his LinkedIn profile, and social media, that sort of things and a couple of other things he has spoken about recently. And don't forget to look out for his book, What Happens When Our Children Don't Sleep, which should be coming out towards the end of November 2023 to find out even more information on what he discussed in this conversation. But that's enough from me, my friends. Just make sure you check out the video version of this conversation at youtube.com slash genuinechitschat if you so desire. And I'll be back at the end of this conversation to give you more information on what's to come and a few other bits and pieces. So without further ado, here is Dr. Blaine Leeds. Welcome to Genuine Chits Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. It would be a bit strange, uh, you being a, a dental practitioner working in, in pyjamas. But to be fair, if my dentist was in PJs, I'd be like, you know what? You're having a great time. You're a lot more comfortable. I respect the hustle for doing that. <laughs> well, you know, you could make a case that scrubs are almost PJs. I mean, a lot of dentists wear scrubs and, you know, you wash those things a few thousand times and they, you know, they feel like a good pair of silk pajamas. Wow. Very, very insightful. I've never worn scrubs, but I, I, I went to the dentist last week, actually, and I noticed um, no scrub wearing. But we are here today. I'm here speaking with Dr. Blaine Leeds, who has been in the well in the dental industry you're a dentist and you have been for a few decades but you've also recently turned your attention into sleep because there's a very interesting uh, connection that a lot of people uh, weren't aware of when it comes to sleep and specifically sleep apnea and then jaw growth and all kinds of stuff so a lot of what you're trying to kind of get out there in the world by doing your little podcast tour and also um your book as well that's um i think either has just come out or is coming out um so Rather than asking rhetorical questions, I'll ask you, Dr. Blaine, um, when is your book coming out? What's it about? And we'll jump off from there. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for having me on. Uh, the book is called What Happens When Your Child Doesn't Sleep. It's written uh, with my colleague, Brian Ferry, F-E-R-R-E, uh, Brian with a Y. And it's basically about you know how underdeveloped jaws can cause our children not to be able to breathe properly and therefore not sleep very well. And it can lead to things like bedwetting and anxiety and attention deficit problems and this sort of thing. And so really what my, as you say, little podcast tour is about is, can we tell this story? What's the what's the new story of dentistry, you know, in the UK and the US in 2020 and beyond? Uh, you know, and, and in the US, you know, people still think I pull teeth every day. That's what I, you know, how many teeth you pull this week, doc? You know, well, hopefully zero because we're, you know, we're trying to save most of them. Uh, and, you know, dentistry, we've done, uh, you know, I think I can talk about us as a profession, right? Because I am one, uh, you know, it takes one to know one, the old, the old phrase is, but, you know, we've done a, uh, you know, we're getting better about it, but we've done a poor job of marketing actually what we do. And we didn't market anything at all for a long, long time. And it was considered 
out of vogue, you know, to market yourself as a medical professional in the States in the 70s and 80s and even up into the late 90s. And then we've had some television programming over here that helped change that. Uh, Bill Dorfman, a dentist in Los Angeles, had a show on ABC television here in the States called Extreme Makeover. They probably, there may have been something similar that, you know, a lot of UK shows come over to the States later on. So maybe it started in the UK. I don't know. And they made an American version of it. I'm not sure. But it, it certainly, everybody kind of ballyhooed that as, as unnecessary stuff in our profession at first. And then we were like, wait a minute. My patients are coming in and asking me about sleep apnea and asking me about, you know, how they can have the same uh, veneers as Catherine Zeta-Jones, you know, which they can. And I pr- provided those for my patients from the exact same lab, thanks to Bill Dorfman and actually educating people about what our profession is. And in 2010 and beyond, I can't remember when the show began airing, but um, it was a real boon to us, you know, a, as a profession, because people were able to understand that, hey, the dentist doesn't have to be scary. It can be exciting and fun and, you know, cosmetically pleasing and aesthetic uh, and really help uh, help people smile better and feel better and sleep better. And with the sleep side of things, you know, I learned late in my career, sadly, uh, here in the States, we don't we didn't teach it very well in the early 90s, and mid 90s that, you know, we can help patients feel better. We can treat a whole human being. We could even save someone's life in the dental chair. Agreed. Yeah, it's mental. When I was looking up some of the information, because I think dentistry is something that, although it is integral to society working, like when you look into the depths of uh, sort of pre-dentistry, I was looking up like dentistry is, as a formality kind of emerged in sort of the, the early 1700s in France, and then it kind of evolved from there. There's obviously been history prior to that where there have been uh, in individuals cleaning their teeth, a variety of things, I think chewing pine and stuff like that has been a case. But like even in the UK, um, dentistry wasn't really considered that really that majorly until the last sort of century or so um when the nhs kind of got formed and then dentistry got allowed into that then a lot more british individuals uh started taking more care of their teeth i know stereotypically uh, britons do not have uh the most cosmetically pleasing teeth according to all american tv shows um but <laughs> especially the cartoons um but it's one of those where one thing i always say to people uh, when it comes to teeth is Obviously, it's very important. And, you know, if you get infections here, it's right next to your brain. So if something severe happens there, it it can cause some serious problems. It's what you eat out of. It's what you breathe from. But also, a parallel I like to draw is one of the biggest killers of um, dogs and cats, especially when they're stray, is mouth infections, is their their teeth start to rot and those sorts of things. And people with dogs and cats, I I have a dog and I grew up with uh, cats and things, we know how important it is, you know, how, how much that can happen. But I think that... In today, less so today, but kind of decades prior, people really didn't prioritize teeth health. Um, so before delving into some of the things that you've kind of discovered, uh, well, not, not you as an individual discovered, but some things that you're trying to shine a light on more so, um, is I want to ask over over your decades in the profession, have you found that more recent, like in the last five, ten years, people have been more uh, open to sort of taking on um, like flossing and things with teeth health? Has it got worse or better? or Has it changed at all out of interest? Oh, I think it's some of both. I think we'd be surprised how how little it's still prioritized, you know, in some geographic areas in the United States. But I would say, you know, across the board, it's gotten much better over the years. You know, in 1996, when I graduated from dental school here uh, and uh, from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee, um, you know, ever, ever, every month after that, it seems that there was a fabulous piece of technology, for example, uh, last week, I know I was on LinkedIn looking at some 
different folks that were on there and communicating with some people. And I saw a, uh, a brand new uh, home toothbrush hygiene device called a Proclaim system. And you would think that we've had the toothbrush for centuries. In fact, I believe going back, you know, not to, to diss your longtime friends and adversaries, the French, you know, across the channel there. But way back in ancient Egypt, we have evidence that the ancient Egyptians did root canals. They actually used gold points to fill uh, the root canal space and teeth. There were gold crowns that were done on some of the pharaohs. Uh, so dentistry has been in some form, you know, way back into the prehistoric times. Uh, but this Proclaim device is a, you would think we would redesign a toothbrush. It's like a fork. You know, how the fork is very similar to the way it was, you know, back in the dark ages, maybe more tines now than it had back then <laughs> on the fork. Uh, but, and God bless the spork. How do we, do they have sporks in the UK? I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because all they do is, I mean, is destroy one's ability to eat pudding. I mean, it's like you cannot get the pudding or the mashed potatoes from the bottom of the container with the spork, you, you might as well use the handle <laughs> of the spork. But this Proclaim device, you know, we'd think we'd have a better toothbrush than just something, a handheld thing with bristles on it. But maybe it's the portability of it, the ease of just shoving it in a tiny little dop kit or bag to take with us has made it easy. But this system is, it fits like a whitening tray or, or a night guard in the patient's mouth and it's connected to uh, a hydration-driven system, a water pressure system, almost like the combination of a water pick system and a toothbrush so that a patient, and in seven seconds, it provides a home care hygiene experience that is 13 times more effective than flossing. Wow. And and these are some pretty interesting studies. They're not just, it's not, you know, a fly-by-night organization that's done this. It's real peer-reviewed type studies but so your, you know, your listeners may want to check those out. I mean, because this, mm. this system is coming and I'm certainly interested as a provider, if my patients, because everything, you know, everything in life, we need it to be done faster now. Right. So we can get back to our podcast or whatever we're going to do. So, um, you know, it's in seven seconds we can provide because, you know, I've been teaching my patients for years, you know, you want to, you know, we used to use timers. In fact, some of the oral B devices here in the States have a timer in the, in the handheld portion of the brush you know, to remind patients, okay, well, you've brushed long enough in this particular fourth of your mouth, so it's time to switch. And so if we've got something that, in the you know, could clean someone's teeth at home in the time that I just took to describe this, to, you know, the the segmental polishing of an Oral-B device to you, then, you know, we've come a long way. And those things continue to come out. I mean, uh, you know, root canals changed forever. The, the year that I graduated from dental school, Everything became uh, powered and rotary driven instead of using hand files for patients. And so these procedures are the only reason in the States now that we discuss root canals with patients is because we don't have the NHS. So we patients have to private pay for everything. So we have to discuss cost because root canals end up being a, one of the higher ticket items in a dental office if the doctor provides them provides that service. And otherwise our patients wouldn't know that we were doing them. I mean, literally the the procedure now is so smooth and so straightforward that, you know, if someone's listening to this in the States and you have a painful, god-awful root canal situation, then there was probably some infection still there or the nerve tissue is really inflamed. And there, there's, but there's a way around that, you know, dentistry in the UK or the US or India or wherever you have it, you know, in 2023 20, and beyond ought to be comfortable and, and not, not a big deal for the patient. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I personally have never had an issue with uh, going to the dentist. Um, I've been quite fortunate where I've had I had teeth pulled, but that was like a milk teeth, um, so that wasn't too bad. Whereas, uh, as I said, Megan, uh, she had a wisdom tooth pulled out last week, um, which she was quite worried about it. So I went into the, you know, uh, into the the practice with her and sat while she had it kind of pulled out and things. And even from, from I my memory from when I was younger, I was like. That was done in minutes. I remember it took ages of mine. I know it can, there is also the, you know, different teeth and then how far gone it is and also teeth can shatter and all kinds of different elements of why. But even just from my own memory and seeing things, they've really changed in techniques and advances. I think x-ray, I know x-ray has been around for ages, but I went in for a checkup because I hadn't had my last dentist appointment, I'm sorry, since before COVID, but my dental surgery, I had an appointment, COVID, lockdowns, they said only emergencies. And then I was like, okay, I'll give you some time, contact them in 2021 we didn't hear from you took you off the list so since then i've been like i need to find another surgery or another practice um and the lots have been full so i finally found one which is the one that megan goes to um we had that done and they were like, oh, i'll just quickly get an x-ray and i was like oh, i'll be in there for ages and then just a little thing on the side of my mouth with a little plate on it light flick and then other side and done and then she showed me then and there oh yeah here's your teeth and i was like what magic is this so the, the advances in technology as you said like they're going in such a cool direction but Something that you've mentioned uh, in quite a few of the podcasts, which here I try not to tread old ground, but there's certain times where topics get spoken about where they're just too interesting. So I'm going to have to ask you to repeat yourself as you have done on many other podcasts. But the future of dentistry, you have mentioned with AI being um, a positive force for a lot of things to do with dentistry. So I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit of how you perceive the future of dental work going and especially with the assistance of AI. Well, um, I think... I'll probably botch this term, but I, I, you've heard the term fractionation before. Mm. In other words, when when glass fractures, it fractures in many different directions instead of just a straight line or sort of a crag line, you know, one in one direction. And that's where we are with AI right now. There's there's software software rather from three weeks ago that is allowing AI to do things on Twitter or X now today that did not exist. Uh, well, for example, my son's 32. Uh, on Friday evening, he spent about five hours and created a completely interaction interactive piece of AI software where using a Google Chrome extension, he was able to attach that someone else created, by the way, op- you know, open source here, just grab this, use it, where you could actually speak to chat GPT rather than type in the data. And wow. from that overnight, they were, they were, he was able to train the AI to actually speak to him using AI to do it. So he didn't have to code it or anything. So who knows where we're headed really in dentistry, but where we are in 2023 is there's great companies out there that are already using AI to, they've, they've put the uh, dental x-rays, digital x-rays like you had made at your local practice there. They've put thousands and thousands of those images into, uh, generative AI systems where and, and said, this is what tooth decay looks like early on the x-ray. And so the AI has seen millions of these images. So now doctors will not have to look at the x-rays at some point because the AI will already say, hey, before you go in that room, doctor, you have decay on these three or four teeth. This is what you need to discuss. The patient's already aware of what kind of treatment options. I mean, because and also patients are going to be able to go and get information from AI about the procedures they're going to have 
And eventually, right, it's not 100% accurate right now. We know in chat GPT, you can, you better double check it because depending on what sources it looked to, the, the, the information could be completely false. But there are areas in dentistry and telehealth and teledentistry where, you know, I can, you know, if you opened your mouth and got really close to the camera right now, and we had a good light source, we could do a much more advanced than rudimentary dental exam for you. Just, you know, uh, completely digitally like this, but we're going to be able to get to a point where, and that's one of the things I'm working on is developing AI that is, is directed by me so that I'm not going to be using, you know, a joystick to control a robot in Baltimore to do a procedure, but I'm going to have already trained the AI to diagnose something to explain to a patient the signs and symptoms of sleep apnea in a child, uh, or even preliminarily have the information to see once a patient uploads a photograph, for example, to see what their facial form is and what their jaw structure looks like and be able to recommend an appliance for them that they can click and purchase right now that, that I've already directed the AI to diagnose, if that makes sense. So that's that's really where we're headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those with AI, because I, in my uh, day job, I work in insurance, and they're talking about, you know, how we, we can use AI for stuff. And a lot of my, uh, or some of my colleagues would be worried that, oh, what about our jobs? And I was like, we're not there. Not that will be a conversation for the future. But really what AI is used, is used for a lot of the time now is just trying to cut out the kind of, almost the admin work, the, the, the time in which any human almost could do in in loose terms obviously when it comes to dentistry it's a lot more complex but in in sort of terms it's like what's what's something that a, a trainee could know you know a, a dental um, a low-level dental nurse or an intern the kind of things you'd learn on the job almost within the first few weeks how to spot tooth rot tooth decay what to recommend with this or that like these really sort of low-level things in air quotes that's the kind of thing that AI can do. When you get to the more complex things and the things you actually need a human for, people are going to want a human. I think for surgeries, I think it's going to be, even if it's possible, which I assume it will be at some point, almost everyone would rather, I think, have a human do it. Even though I imagine at a point, much like self-driving cars are going to get to the point, it's actually going to be safer to go with a machine than with an AI, but obviously than with a human, you know. But that's a whole big kettle of fish which is we're not there yet and uh, you're not promoting a book on ai you're promoting a book uh which you've wrote with um sorry is brian was it um ferrer f-e-r-r-e f-e-r-r-e but he pronounces it fairy just fairy. like the Eng english musician yeah. oh, okay fantastic brilliant so um because i i did read through um the the first you know 25 odd pages i think of of the book itself and i've heard you speaking about it quite a lot on things and I do want to delve into that because, um, as I said, my fiance Megan, uh, she recently had a wisdom tooth out. She also suffers with sleep apnea. Um, and I want to ask, because I think this question, um, I think you'll, uh, you'll let it tangentially go into your book and things. But basically, what's up with wisdom teeth? Why is it that people so frequently need to have them removed? And then if you could kind of segue that into your, um, into your book, then uh, that'd be fantastic. Sure. It won't be a very long segue. Uh, they're, they're very much related because uh, if you, there's a book by an anthropologist named Robert Corasini. And Dr. Corasini studied skulls in sub-Saharan Africa, where in that culture, many children breastfeed until almost age four or five. 
Also, we see about a 5% chance or less of sleep apnea in adults in sub-Saharan Africa. Plus, he went back and looked at skulls from ancient times when our diets did not include soft puree baby food. Mm -hmm. uh, babies were given large raw vegetables or bones to gnaw on that they couldn't swallow. All right. So they wouldn't choke to death, but they could chew on the bones and get the nourishment out of, you know, a hard carrot or a bone from an animal, you know, back in the day. And so we found that functioning on the gums like that helps expand the jaws. And when we have expanded jaws, we have room for all 32 human teeth. And we're even seeing in our society four or five generations down the road that we're evolutionarily re removing by process of natural selection, wisdom teeth from human beings. Everybody should have 32 teeth. I was only born with one wisdom tooth. You, typically in the U.S., about 25% of the population have one, zero, one, or three. The other 50% have two or four. Most people have four still, but we're even seeing people being born now without their wisdom teeth. But if our jaws are fully developed and fully expanded, and we know now that if we have about 41 millimeters, at least in England, you know, you'll understand here in the U.S. What it's only the U.S. and Burma, I believe, Myanmar, <laughs> you know, only two countries that still use the English system of measure, right? But 41 millimeters between your upper first molars, or what we call the six-year molars, the molars that come in behind the baby teeth when a child is six years old, uh, the biggest portion of our biting, what we call the occlusal table, the way the teeth contact one another. These six-year molars are the biggest part of our chewing surfaces. And those teeth, uh, you know, come in behind the baby teeth. But if we have those teeth spread apart at least 41 millimeters, then we have a flat, broad palate. We have room for the tongue to rest up where it belongs behind the front teeth. And that keeps the tongue from falling back into the, the oropharynx, the airway space, and collapsing the tissues back there and making the airway small. And so those things are very closely related. We want big, wide smiles. Even space is good. In the U.S., we've been worried about space. Let's close all that space down. And what we don't think about is if we look at a patient in profile, or we look at an x-ray profile of a patient, I can, I can show you thousands of these where people have, you know, a, an airway space the size of a coffee stirring straw uh, instead of, uh, you know, the size of a garden hose or a little bit bigger than your index finger should be the size of our airway space. And humans should be breathing through our nose uh, all the time, effortlessly, invisibly, quietly, all the time. Because when we breathe through our nose, that's the only time that we hit a little sensor in the back of our oropharynx near the parasinuses so that we secrete nitric oxide, which is what Vin Diesel puts in his Dodge Charger engine. And it's what makes us have a vasodilation in our body so that we carry oxygenated blood to wherever it belongs and needs to be right now, whether it's our brain or our heart or our muscles, if we're competing or, or functioning. And restorative sleep is so important in getting that oxygen where it belongs. And that happens with nasal breathing and big, wide smiles that have room for the wisdom teeth with the properly developed jaws. Mm. Yeah, well, I have a nice big, uh, I've got a gap right in the, the middle of those teeth, but these teeth at the bottom, there's no gap at all. And as my jaw has kind of shifted as i've gotten older one of my tooth has cut kind of, teeth has pulled back a little bit and annoyingly it's kind of caught so i had this pain for a little while where almost a part of the tooth had kind of done that a little bit so that was i'm i'm saying yeah proponent the top top teeth with the gaps and stuff 
They've never had an issue. Um, but I want to ask, like, uh, we'll delve more into the point that you just made uh, a little bit more in a moment. But one thing I've noticed from a lot of the podcasts and interviews and things I've been listening to you of is you clearly have a thirst for knowledge. Now, not just in dentistry and not just in sleep apnea from obviously when you were diagnosed with it yourself, you know, over a decade ago. But like, whenever you speak about anything, you always have got a footnote of other things that you find interesting. You know, obviously music is a very big part of your life as well. I think one of your sons is into music as well as in performing and he's in a band, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you were just speaking about um, maybe the same son, maybe a different one of doing the AI stuff. So clearly there's the knowledge kind of in there. I want to ask you on sort of a personal note, with with the thirst for knowledge that you've had, how did you get into dentistry of, of all things it's a very important profession and we need people like you who are very open-minded and interested by it but like from a get-go you wouldn't immediately think oh yeah dentistry and then the thirst for knowledge that the universe holds like just on a personal level how did you get into dentistry and maybe even why well and 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 who it's like the the uh, i mean do you get the old reruns of rudolph the red-nosed reindeer over there who the stop motion ones that, who is that elf that says I'll be a dentist, you know, who wakes up one morning and says to them, I'm going to be a dentist, you know, and, and uh, it's, and I always remind people, you know, some people are grossed out by that. How do you look in people's mouths all day long? I'm, well, at least I'm not a proctologist, you know, as my, <laughs> there's a, there's a different end that might be more, you know, more difficult to look at. But for me, I, I, I started thinking about, I love the sciences as a little kid, like in junior high, I kind of gravitated toward chemistry and biology. And my father was an engineer and he, uh, you know, he always worked for someone else for the for biggest part of his early career. And he was like, you know, why don't you be a doctor or, or a dentist? Think about that maybe because you could, you can be your own boss. You can, you know, you can live where you want to live. And, you know, he kind of, my parents and I kind of talked about the quality of life, things that happen, you know, not with envy, but with longing, maybe from his own profession where, I mean, he's obviously an intelligent guy. He has an engineering degree, right? So he could have just as easily gone to into the medical sciences and, and maybe had a different career, you know, where he could do some different things with his free time and stuff. But um, so that was part of the encouragement. And I was, I was good at the sciences. I, I I liked sports growing up, and and so I was competitive. And my mother was a very competitive person. She had two brothers who cheated her at Monopoly and cards, so she had to really learn how to count cards. And so she became a really good bridge player, and uh, and and every other card game, pinochle and Texas pitch and rook and rummy, and she can play anything because she had these two brothers that she had to be watching them all the time, uh, and. and I mean, did they have the Monopoly board game in the UK? Yeah, we've got... I was playing it the other week, in actual fact, but we've got it for, like, every city you go to now in a gift shop, there's the city or town gift shop. Um, Megan's got one of the universities she went to, just just the university. I wow. play it, and where Mayfair normally is is just the middle campus area of, of the University of Kent. And I'm like, I don't know it. I've never been here. This means nothing to me. What a niche Monopoly board. I don't, I don't know if I want any, any of these properties. I don't know where they're done. <laughs> But in the, in the U.S., my and so my my mom, uh, she had all of the mortgage. Uh, you, you know, I don't know if people even know this. You know, I'm going to go way off into Never Neverland here. But it. in in Monop, because some people have, may have played the game before and never actually mortgaged the properties. In other words, when you own a hotel or a house and you have 
issues in the game and you're losing money, you can actually flip the cards over and mortgage your property and borrow against your real estate in Monopoly to get enough money back to actually get back in the game. And so my mom, she knew the mortgage values. Uh, She memorized all of the property values with one house, two houses, three houses, uh, a hotel. So, so because her brothers would cheat her, if she didn't know they would pay her less rent than they owed. And so, so I came from a competitive family. So I was in, in school, I was competing, right. I was trying to maybe have good grades in science and try to be a, you know, a, top five guy in my class, that kind of thing. And so that with the with that background and and really absorbing a lot of the science stuff and being fairly good at it, then that kind of drove me into that, you know, spot in the world as far as getting, you know, education in pre-medicine and pre-dentistry and and going on to dental school. And a lot of you see a lot of family, you know, connections in dentistry. A lot of people you know, their father's an orthodontist, so they get interested or it, it really happens a lot in, in orthodontics. You'll have a patient that you know, she had a crush on her orthodontist, right? She went and, and thought, I, you know what? I love this job. I want to do this. And so a lot of patients end up being dentists that had a lot of dentistry done if they had a good experience. And so, uh, but for me, it was about, I grew up in a small town in the rural American South. So I was able to, my dad had just enough money, you know, as an engineer, uh, we, we were poor, but we thought we were middle-class kind of thing growing up. So we would travel to, you know, Kansas City or Detroit or Chicago or visit family in the summer and, you know, uh, maybe go to an amusement park or something. And so I saw enough U.S. metropolitan areas to know that I wanted to live in a small town and have a family someday and live. But I wanted to be able to go and visit these places. And so a, a career in healthcare enabled me to come back to where the place that I loved, which was my hometown and which I, I did for the first 16 years of my career. That's amazing. I mean, my dad always said to me, uh, he wanted me to be a dentist. <laughs> it was like, if there's any job, because even here in the UK, um, you know, we've got generally the way they kind of work now is there are certain uh, dental practices that are purely uh, private, but a, a huge amount of them are both. So you basically, the, the NHS has got a certain waiting list and then the private's got a separate waiting list, normally shorter, but it costs more money. If you get fillings, you can get the horrible looking metallic filling um, and that's on the NHS. So it's like at the moment about £40 or you can get a very nice cl- like white one that no one else can see as of higher quality, but that's 250 odd pounds instead so it's like if you've if you've got the money you can go private but nhs still costs a little bit and my dad always said to me be a dentist our family dentist he literally worked i think six months (laughs) a year of that in the waiting room there's no magazines it was just one folder it's just our dentist across the entire world like my month in china and it's just in every place you've ever wanted to go and dad was like you need to be a dentist (laughs) which i failed (laughs) Well, um, and I'll, I will tell you that my dad, as an engineer, he, he, sometimes he had equipment that he designed that you know might be in the you know a small Texas town outside Dallas where it's 111 degrees in the summer, and he's hanging upside down on a machine trying to get a hydraulic cylinder to work properly. And so that did enter his mind. You know, a dentist works with you know pretty hygienists in a nice office every day. It's not like swinging an axe, you know, Sonny boy. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you want to try this healthcare thing. That's a good shout. Um, I want to ask as well, um, I have a note here, which is collaboration between practitioners and industries. And I've noticed that a lot of your work, even obviously the book being um, written with uh, Brian Ferrier, but obviously where you wrote this book, that was a collaboration. A lot of the work you've done over the years, you've mentioned about speaking with other individuals. And you came from a very competitive family. And I know that in many industries, but I think in America, uh, more so than other places in the world, competition is 
perceived as a good thing now competition i think is generally a good thing you know in when you're growing up it's very good to have adversity you know companies sh- they shouldn't have a monopoly uh, ironically and there should always be competition but i think in the medical profession i've not personally and i'm not in the medical profession so my knowledge is limited i've not really heard about collaboration that much apart from stuff that is necessary you know i have to collaborate with you because this patient's got this issue that is not my speciality but with yourself you seem to be collaborating with a lot of people in a non-mandatory way without having to you're you're you're, you're opening doors and wanting to collaborate and coming from a, a competitive background that's somewhat surprising so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of your collaborative nature when it comes to dental work and then we can delve a bit more into the book sure well you know i wish i knew the origin of this quote but we'll call it anonymous for now but i heard this quote that was that was great if you if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together, somebody mm. said. And, uh, you know, we can help a lot more patients if if we kind of band together and, you know, have this collegial approach. Uh, because I learned, and in, in fact, I learned to be less competitive with my colleagues in dentistry and more have a more partnering approach from a Pakistani-born Canadian dental assistant named Mtiaz Manji, who retired way before I did as one of the founders uh, of a, a group called Experdent, where he trained dental office personnel and dental assistants in Toronto, Canada, where he immigrated to back in the 80s. And Mtiaz eventually formed uh, one of the largest dental education groups in the United States called Spear Education. And they're in Scottsdale, Arizona. But uh Mtiz has retired now, but he's one of my mentors because he explained to me that you don't have to have 9,000 active patient charts in your dental practice in the U.S. to to be amply successful. You only need 1,000 to 1,500 active patients. Well, I was in a town of 10,000 people in a county of 25,000. There were only seven dentists. I was the youngest. I was the only one under age 50. And so that instantly freed me up. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So I don't have to go out there and be, you know, battling for the, that consumer dollar all the time. We just have to, to, you know, reach out to a few patients, take care of them and let them invite others into our world and see how we're doing things. And, you know, do like Steve Jobs said to do and be different, think different, you know, do it a little bit different. And for example, we had digital x-ray, which you just, you know, talked about, uh, you know, having an image taken and instantly looking at a screen. I can remember in 1996, we were maybe one of the first offices in Arkansas in the U.S. to have digital x-ray uh, with my colleague and partner back then, Dr. Steve Fisher. And Steve uh, loved technology. And so, and he and he looked at it almost like a new toy. And so every month we would have a new piece of equipment that made things nicer for us or nicer for the patients. And Digital x-ray, when you have a patient come in and you put that x-ray up on a screen that's 40 inches diagonal and they can actually see what you're talking about, it changes. You know, we didn't we didn't have to uh, try to justify, you know, what the, our price was for a filling or something because our patients could look around and they could see that this is this is a different environment than we have in most places in Arkansas. This is this is really interesting and good care that I'm getting here and, and we're grateful for it. 
Mm, very nicely said. I do think as well, linking with one of the earlier points we made very early on in this conversation is another thing about dentistry I think a lot of people forget about is even if you ignore everything we've mentioned about how important it is, one thing is for certain, and that is your nerve endings in your mouth are arguably them and I think your hands are like the most sensitive things. And like if anyone gets like an abscess in their tooth or a cracked tooth or needs a root canal, people can't function with the agony of toothache. Like it's even like I've had sinusitis once or twice from like a bit of a chest infection, then it, you know, spreads of course. Went to the dentist just straight away, looked at my teeth, said it was fine, and I was just like, I've got so much pain here. And I found out, you know, sinusitis pressure and just took some uh, got some antibiotics and stuff. But like there's the pain, and I think that's something that really puts people off dentistry. Is why it's why I think a lot of people are put off by hospitals in certain ways. There's other reasons, but like in, for me, I've always been, oh, I have pain or discomfort. I go here and it gets fixed. But I think what a lot of other people do is they go, they associate the place that fixes it as the cause almost. Do you know, do you find that maybe that they kind of inadvertently associate pain, even though it's actually meant to be the curing of it? Well, it, it couldn't be that we actually did inflict some pain in our profession over the years now, could it? I mean, <laughs> we, you know, a few bad apples spoil the bunch, right? I mean, if somebody, uh, and, and it, you know, back in the day in the U.S., we would, we would use a root canal as the worst possible thing, you know, analogy to compare anything to. In other words, I'd rather have a root canal than have that done. And, and now that you don't really hear people say that much anymore because root canals are such a non-event now that the technology is better and the medicine's better. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we brought a lot of that on ourselves, you know, because we had in our profession, we, we did so we went ahead and worked on a patient when their nerve supply and their tooth was full of bacteria. And we, we wanted to get them taken care of that day. And we thought maybe we could by going ahead and working on that tooth today when really they just probably needed to slow play it a little bit and have some medicine and come back with that. Because it's like, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you know, you're probably going to lose that thumbnail. And so it's like, do I want to take it off today while it's twice the normal size and every nerve ending in that thumb tip is inflamed and sore, or do I want to let it heal for a few days and then address the problem? And, and when there's, when there's vast inflammation in the nerve supply, it's, it's like walking on your eyeball. I mean, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable and people, you know, people have, uh, I've had patients tell me that, you know, nothing has hurt in my life like this. And, and, a, and a, a molar toothache, you know, a molar pulpitis, inflamed nerve tissue in a human molar tooth is extremely excruciating. It's awful. Agreed completely. Um, so we'll delve into then um, your book itself. Now, the, the book, from what I understand, and please elaborate on this, is it seems to be that you essentially, you were diagnosed with sleep apnea, and then you started delving more into the world of it while obviously keeping up your dental practice and things. And then you essentially have these two problems, which is children essentially having not very high quality of sleep, causing a variety of different issues, and your own sleep apnea. And then as I think this book really marries what you found from those two things put together. So please tell us really, you know, how, well, basically how how teeth and sleep apnea and why children are involved, like all, all these things, they all seem to be non, not involved. But you've, in just in the book and what you've been speaking about in podcasts, you have, you've created the web to really show that these things are far more interconnected than people realize. So please uh, delve in. Well, that's really what the mission is, is to 
come on your podcast and others like it or on a television interview or a radio inter- interview or through an the audio segment of the book or or putting the book in someone's hands or talking to doctors and teams in their offices or teaching groups of people at a dental meeting it's hey folks we have to understand this story and you know i was at the american academy of dental sleep medicine meeting in philadelphia back in may of 2023 and i was really shocked and appalled at how little the medical community and the U.S. dental community communicated with one another about this problem and how unaware each side was of what treatment modalities were out there. And so, and Brian and I have been trying to tell this story for a long time because Brian's story is much more tragic than mine. His wife actually passed away from sleep apnea complications uh, eight years ago now, and she had two CPAP machines uh, wrapped in the cellophane and the plastic in the box underneath her bed when she died. And, uh, you know, when you lose a loved one like that, Brian became, his background is in marketing and teaching people how to market things and sell things and build websites and and train teams on how to sell and, and do marketing. And, and so he was like, I have to make this my life's mission. We can't have other people dying because of a mistake or dying because of ignorance because they just don't know what their diagnosis really is. And you know, we have to be really careful as uh, in dentistry and medicine to not just treat signs and symptoms of a problem, but also look at what is the root cause of this. Why did Bob come in here and he's 53 years old? He's 100 pounds overweight. He's got dark circles under his eyes. He's grinding his teeth flat. His tongue is huge and has wavy scallops on either side of it. And all of a sudden, he's on blood pressure medicine and we checked his medical history and he wasn't last time. So his doctor told him he has congenital hypertension, congenital, but it's probably just genetic. You just got everybody in your family's had high blood pressure. Well, guess what? Everybody in his family was also built like him. Their skull was shaped the same. Their jaws were narrow and they couldn't breathe through their nose. So along with the beta blocker to get the blood pressure down, let's look and see what really caused it. And let's see if maybe he could have some, maybe he could have orthodontics as an adult, you know, standard orthodontics, bands and brackets and wires and move teeth around and create some expansion and breathe better through his nose. You know, let's address what the root problem is. So that's what we're really trying to do is, is And as a patient, a CPAP patient myself, a sleep apnea patient, I was one of the few people who could, you know, only four in 10 Americans are able to tolerate CPAP, a CPAP machine. We're just wearing the device. Megan hates and it. So, She's got the mask thing like that, and she can't stand yeah. it. Well, uh, it, does her mask, uh, we'll do a little bit of diagnostics with her not even there. Does yeah. her mask or her entire nose and mouth? Yes, and I've heard you saying that you think the ones that go in the nose have got, well, not you think, the data shows that the ones that just go in the nose work far better, don't they? They should, yes. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that's part of the reason that we have such a low compliance rate in the U.S. is because some doctors don't understand that they shouldn't prescribe this full-face mask for a couple of reasons. Number one, some people are claustrophobic. They, can't, they cannot tolerate that. It's just covering too much of their face. Number two, it's terrible for the skin. They're breathing in and out through their mouth and their skin gets flaky and dry and they hate that. But what happens when we put the nasal pillow attachment on? So that's the most comfortable one out there, everybody. If you got to have CPAP, I, I don't know why my, my Zoom has some sort of setting that, <laughs> that celebrates when I lift my hands. Let me do some jazz hands. So that, that was perfect timing, though. I love that. <laughs> Fireworks right at the proper moment. 
Um, but I love the nasal pillow attachment. And I was fortunate that I had the nurses in the sleep center where I had my sleep study done. They said, oh, yeah, you want this attachment. It's the most comfortable. And I literally, I went home, Mike, and I put this thing on. And I slept four and a half hours. It felt like I'd been asleep for a month. I mean, I woke up feeling so much better. And I had no idea I was sleep deprived. And uh, I was always one of these people who felt like he could survive on, you know, five, six hours of sleep. Every human being needs eight hours of sleep every night. And and a person should be able to sleep throughout the night without having to get up and whiz. So if if you're having to get up and pee in the middle of the night, you know, look at sometimes that can be your body's defense system, flushing your kidneys and waking you up because you're not breathing. So look at things like don't consume caffeine after lunchtime. Caffeine stays in our system six hours after we consume it. So in England, if we're having high tea at four o'clock in the afternoon, then, you know, maybe you should go to bed at eight or excuse me, at midnight, you know, British time, because that way maybe the caffeine will be out of your system from the, from the tea. Um, So monitor that kind of stuff because human beings should be able to sleep throughout the night. So I had the CPAP machine and then I thought, oh, wow, I can actually help patients with this. I can, I can. So I started taking better medical histories. We started uh, having our hygienists do blood pressure uh, readings at a dental office, which is just a really nice service anyway. In the U.S., the way dental insurance works is they'll typically pay for hygiene visits, uh, you know, teeth cleanings and routine exams twice a year at 100% coverage. And so in the U.S., you're seeing your dentist twice a year if you have if you have insurance. And so as dentists and dental teams, we can we can notice changes on a really nice increment in our patients. Oh, you've lost 40 pounds. Congratulations. What happened? Oh, well, I had cancer. I've been sick. Oh, God. And so, you, you know, you find these things out. But, you know, as a practitioner, we take a good medical history. We gather some data and we start treating the whole person, you know, because uh, we, we're seeing these patients twice a year. It's such a nice service if we can also save their lives. I mean, the Panorex x-rays that we take, I'm sure they take them at the NHS over there. Many times we can even see the carotid arteries. I bought a practice here in the States that did not have a Panorex machine. We put a fairly inexpensive digital Panorex in the office. I think it cost $12,000 in 2011 for this device. Um, We saved a person's life the same afternoon we installed it because they had carotid blockages. They'd been coming there to the dentist for years, never had had this x-ray before because it wasn't offered. They had double double blockages the size of my index finger in their carotid arteries, which showed up on a standard dental X-ray. Oh wow! So sometimes these routine exams, you know, if you if you're alert and you're aware as a practitioner, and you're trying to help your patients, you're treating the whole patient instead of just looking at that tiny little groove where that tooth decay might be. You know, these kind of things can happen. And so as we started to be more thorough and complete and treat the whole patient, we realized, oh my goodness. These kids aren't breathing and these large tonsils are caused from 20 hours a day of mouth breathing. That's why children have tonsillitis many times. They're breathing this unfiltered, bacteria-filled, cruddy air into their oral cavity with no hair in their nose to filter it, no distance from the nose to the base of the face to warm the, the air to temperature. So it's this stark, cold air filled with crud that's coming into their mouth because they should be breathing through their nose. And we have inflamed tonsils and adenoids. So that led to how can we help these children? What can we do? And, and we know now that 
there's a multiplicity of appliances out there that we can have children as young as two begin to wear, and it helps them while they're sleeping. Uh, it helps them expand their jaws and keep their jaws from being underdeveloped so they can breathe through their nose, which is the key. It's amazing. Yeah. Cause a lot of the, I found like so much information out listening to some of the other talks you've been doing. Like, I think it was like approximately 80% of skull development has occurred in the first sort of two years of life. Like the where, where your skull is going to grow to 80% in the first couple of years. And I know that you've used anecdotes before where it's been like, Oh yeah, the kid's teeth aren't great, but we'll wait and see. And we can just do orthopedic surgery or, or um, orthopedic sort of action on them at a later date. And you yourself have said like, we need to do it earlier we need to correct these things sooner and sooner because you know all of these things that are occurring and i think reading between the lines and in some degree i think that what's happening with society and it's same with ai same with social media all that jazz is that everything is advancing quicker then we have time to almost evolve to catch up with now i know that evolution is that's not how evolution works you know um but like it's it's something that changes in society either our diets are changing or the air that we're breathing in uh, or any kind of variety of things you know you mentioned about less people are breastfeeding for a variety of different reasons but because of that it's you know the chewing motion on the breast that essentially helps the jaw develop in a proper way like all these different elements of things that are contributory uh, contributory factors into why these things are happening and it seems like everything's moving forward so quickly and no one's looking at like really simple or not even simple solutions, but things people hadn't really considered. And I think with uh, dentistry, as you kind of said earlier on, is the, A, marketing people for dentistry hasn't been ideal, but also, as you said, like the toothbrush has been around for, you know, potentially thousands of years. And it's like the toothbrush I use, I've got an electric one, but the one I use when I travel and stuff is just a standard one. It's basically the same as the one I used when I was a child. And it's like, how is the technology of all these other things changing so much? But And technology within the dental practice is changing as well. But why is it, not other elements aren't catching up why are things not getting better at the rate in which technology is improving in, in certain respects and i think what you've you've honed in on here is just it's something people are overthinking in a way but it you have to have all of the bits of the picture you need the whole of the medical professions to all be like here's the data we found here here's the data we found here and once you all get that it's like a jigsaw puzzle and i think that with the work that you're doing, you know, with this book and the whole the, the podcast tour and any other places that you speak on this, I think that hopefully not only will it foster, you know, what you're aiming for, which is, you know, to reduce sleep apnea in people and then also to improve, you know, dental health and et cetera. But like, I'm hoping that this will be a template for more medical industries, including dentistry more so, to to collaborate because it's just it's so surprising i'm so thankful that you exist and that you've spent all this time and effort and you and uh, brian ferry have done these things to push these things forward but the fact that it's there's other individuals involved but it's not common practice like how more people don't know this yet is is actually is quite it's quite scary in certain ways well and and i've been focusing on this brian and i have since 2017 and then I, I went to this national meeting and there were, I mean, one of the speakers there was from Scotland, one was from Iceland. It's a global meeting, really, of the of the finest minds that we have dedicated to this from a dental perspective. And then I got there and I, I and, and what I left with was feeling nobody still understands this. No, nobody knows about this yet. Nobody in the world out there understands this still. And we have a huge. And, and, and so I went straight to Brian that, you know, back this summer and said, we got to write this book. We've got to figure out a way to tell this story because there are colleagues of mine out there who are treating these children every day with the right treatment modalities and really changing people's lives. 
uh, you know, like my buddy Ben Morale in Mount Kisco, New York, and Callie Hale in Texas, and Kevin Goals in Colorado, uh, and my colleagues in California, all over the country, uh, that are are helping kids in the U.S. by just having them wear simple appliances and learn how to breathe through their nose and sleep with an appliance in that helps them breathe through their nose. It's incredible. And there's other little things like, you know, we could spend hours talking on this podcast about all the incredible, interesting things that you've spoken about, but we will start to wrap up here. But I want to mention as well, like you've mentioned in the past, these are just like footnotes. I just want to say to people, check out other podcasts you've done as well, because I didn't want to tackle every single thing. But like the main cause of insomnia is people often too hot. You know, the ideal temperature needs to be 67 degrees Fahrenheit or 19.4 centigrade, um, you know, or, or lower. A lot of the time, I think people need to get cooler when they kind of go to sleep as well. And that's a little thing that you, you would hope that with the the sleep epidemic that or the almost insomnia epidemic that this world is having with social media and blue light and all that jazz you'd think that that's a real surely you'd think okay every every room in the western world should have a thermometer in it so we know to get to that temperature i found that out today and i've listened to matthew walker who i know you've cited before who's obviously a very like a frontier in a lot of the sleep research i've listened to podcasts with him and i know there's a lot more other um stuff i can consume to find out more but i only found that out like today and there's lots of little things which are just like there's so many bits and pieces that people just don't know about yet and what you're pushing forward is really revolutionary and you know with my partner as i said she has or fiance i'm so saying partner we've only been engaged for uh, six months now but it's like thank you very much um it's it's one of those where it's just with sleep apnea when she didn't even know about it i diagnosed her i could hear her sleeping and like waking herself up from the choking on the throat and i was like and for me, my wife diagnosed me. My wife saved my life because yeah. she she said, and she's a very heavy sleeper. We live in Tornado Alley over here in, in, uh, in part of the time in western Arkansas, eastern Oklahoma. And so, uh, you know, these tornadoes blow through and they, they rank them on this Fuji scale, right? For And my wife could I always say she could sleep through an F5 tornado. <laughs> she could hear me stopping breathing. She could hear me snoring. And, it, and are gasping for air after I would stop breathing. And that's what patients do. Apnea means literally without air. So patients will stop breathing completely. And when we look at a patient's, uh, and, and sleep studies are so easy now. We can, we can do these in the U.S. where you just wear a ring on your finger. It interacts with the smartphone. You get great data overnight. But about you know, it's, it's estimated in the U.S. that 64 million Americans have undiagnosed sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing. It's about a fifth, isn't so it? Thereabouts, it's about 30, yeah, 330 that, odd million people. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, 300 odd million, 360 million. So, 20 uh, percent of the of the U.S. you know having some sort of an issue with it. And uh, yeah, it's it's just so important. And and uh, but with the sleep study, we can see we can determine that these patients are. They're stopping breathing for 60 seconds, 70 seconds. And then guess what? There's a corresponding cardiac response where the heart rate just escalates. And when do most heart attacks happen? Mike? Night. Night. And so they're very, very intertwined. So uh, everybody get, you know, get your partner to listen to you breathe a little bit if you fall asleep first, you know, <laughs> and see if if maybe a sleep study might might be in order. I'm interested uh Sometime we'll have to come back on and talk more about sleep apnea with the NHS and how, uh, because you have in your country, you have doctors and dentists all working for the, many of them working for the NHS. And so they should be able to communicate back and forth 
about this. Whereas in, in my world, I can't diagnose sleep apnea in the United States if a patient wants it covered by insurance. Hmm. So I have to have a colleague, a medical colleague that I can say, hey, I've got some data over here. It looks like sleep apnea to me. Can you please confirm this diagnosis and see this patient? And then once they do, can they make them an oral appliance? No, because they're not a dentist. So so we have this. That's that's another disconnect that I, you know, I want to talk about and have people understand is that, you know, and really the number one thing is, is going back to this temperature setting and the and, you know, caffeine after a certain time. Mike. And Blaine and all the, you know, your your fiance, my wife, the we're all in charge of our own health, right? And it's ultimately our responsibility to make sure that that doctor didn't give us both a stool softener and something to make us go to the bathroom, right? Or something to make us stop using the restroom. Because I, I can't tell you how many patients in my career I've seen that have been on both those medicines at the same time. You know, read the labels. Read what's in your food, eat eat good whole foods and drink tons of water. I mean, hydration is so important. I can't tell you how many patients I see every day in my dental practice that, that aren't drinking enough water. I mean, just there you go. It. We should have 16, 20 ounces within reach at any given time, you know, wherever we are, because I think our bodies are 76% water by mass, something like that. It's very important. And so just simple things like that, simple, but it's not easy, right? We, no. we, Stick with it and, uh, you know, and but be responsible for your own health. And then from that standpoint, you know, uh, we go back to one of my favorite uh, English Englishmen of all time, John Winston Lennon. And then it's just whatever gets you through the night is all right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. We, we, we will wrap up. I'll give you one more. I'll pass the mic back to you for one final comment. Uh, but I want to say again, thank you for all the work you've done. You're more than welcome to join back again for a part two uh, and to talk about some other things to do with, um, you know, well, I want to anyway, so. come back and I want to come back and talk about how bad Darth Vader's sleep apnea is. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, Mike, Mike also has a Star Wars bucket. So it's like, you know, this guy never breathes through his nose, right? He's <laughs> always breathing. <laughs> I've got a tattoo of Darth Vader actually, so it's uh, it's one of those. I'll, I'll show you once we're done recording, but it's uh, it's nowhere weird. Uh, people on podcasts will see it plenty of times. It makes it sound like it was, it was on my bum, <laughs> but it's not. Trust me, that's not why I'm not showing you on the pod. Um, <laughs> Darth Vader has. I have. I've had him replace one of my nipples. Yes, that's- <laughs> <laughs> oh, Darth Ariola. Um- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's right. The word nobody needs. That's right. <laughs> But yeah, it's been delightful chatting with you, Blaine. And I, I love listening to you on other podcasts and hearing the passion you have, not just for, you know, dentistry, which is your profession and, and the, the intrigue into sleep in which we're helping sort of push forward as well, but also like your love of music, you know, and all kinds of other things as well. So there's always plenty to speak with, with yourself. I want to throw in another little thing that you mentioned in prior, which was um, in another pod, which was um, children in bedwetting. What you've noticed is treating sleep apnea can help bedwetting because if your body is suddenly like can't breathe and it can't wake you up what's a response flush and try and get something to shake you awake because you're running out of air so it's another little thing of like there's so many layers and so many treatments must be given to kids that actually you're treating the symptom rather than the cause so Again, thank you for all of those things. And is there a last final thing that you want to say to anyone? I'll include all the stuff you've discussed in the description as well as links and everything. But the floor is yours, good sir. Before we wrap up, last things. You know, just think think more about your sleep. And, you know, and, you know if your sleep is not restorative, 
go get a sleep study. Go to the NHS if you're in the UK and say, you know, I was listening to this crazy podcast with Mike Burton and some yank was on there talking about people not being able to sleep. And I think I may have some of these signs and symptoms. And if you have them, you know, ask your partner if you're having trouble breathing at night. Do they hear you making strange sounds? If you've got dark circles under your eyes, you breathe through your mouth a lot, you have headaches a lot, you have don't have restful sleep. My question to my patients most of the time in the practice was, uh, you know, do you, how do you, how do you sleep? When's the last time you felt like you got a really good night's sleep? And if they can't remember, then you start looking for the other signs, uh, grinding your teeth, another sign, uh, mouth breathing, uh, drooling in children, bedwetting, all can be related to sleep apnea. So before we go out and we put our children on heavy stimulant medication to help them pay attention, let's rule out sleep apnea first. Adults, you're never going to feel good. You're never going to lose weight. You know, if you, if your sleep is not in order, if you're not, if you don't have restorative sleep, so uh, you know, get get that in order. Take a take a real hard look at how well you're sleeping and how well you're resting. That's it. The dentist tells you to sleep. You know, that's when you know it's important. Uh, but once again, thank you so much for your time, Blaine. I really, really appreciate it. And that's the end of the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, my friends, make sure you check out the details in the show notes, including Dr. Leader's website and look out for his book, What Happens When Our Children Don't Sleep. If you want to hear more conversations like this, make sure you check out the back catalogue as I've been doing this for many, many years now. So there are lots of conversations surrounding science and that kind of thing. A great place to start is Science But Simple. It's a mini series I did for the first couple of years of podcasting with my friend Josh. You can go into any podcast app and type that in or you can go to youtube.com slash genuine chits chat and go to the Science But Simple playlist to hear it. But what else have we got coming up? Well, I obviously recorded a conversation with Ethan Sachs, the Star Wars author, a couple of weeks back, and I've released that. And then next week is going to be another conversation with the Star Wars author. This time it's Adam Christopher. He's the author of the book Shadow of the Sith, and he's also written short stories in each of the Certain Point of View books as well. We also talk about Star Wars and other sci-fi-y things like Doctor Who and that kind of thing. So a really fun nerdy conversation coming next week. Then after that, we've got another Clone Wars conversation prequel where myself, Megan, Dave and Math all watch the Clone Wars movie. And uh, we're not overly a fan of that film, so it's going to be a really fun conversation there. Then we've also got there's going to be a Buffy podcast before Christmas. There's going to be another Disney discussions number 10. And if you're listening to this on the day of release, you've got like two days to send in one of your Disney films. And then myself, Rhea, Dan and Megan are each going to choose one of those movies. And then we're going to put out to a public vote on the top two we're going to tackle in Disney discussions number 10. And then there's a couple of other things in the background. In the new year, I'm going to be speaking with Goff, and there's a few other cool things in the pipeline, but that's generally what's going to happen in the immediate future. If you want to follow me on social media, you can at Genuine Chit Chat on Instagram, X, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm also on Threads now as well, which is obviously connected to Instagram. In addition to that, if you want to help out the show, you can share on social media, you can tell your friends, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Audible, or you can leave a rating on Spotify. If you do any of those things, send a screenshot of it my way and I'll send you a bonus episode, which is on my Patreon. Speaking of which, if you go to patreon.com slash genuine chit chat, if you donate as little as £1 a month, you get immediate access to over 190 episodes of Afterthoughts. I think it might be on like 200 now, when primarily myself and Megan release like bonus episodes every single week. So we review TV shows and movies and live performances we've seen, and sometimes there's extra long episodes where we go on road trips and stuff if you've been a listener of the show for a long time you'll see occasionally those kind of things pop up on the main feed but on the patreon there's a huge huge amount of them and the vast majority of them you cannot get anywhere else and it's just another podcast to add to your weekly roster but the majority of these episodes are between 10 and 20 minutes long so they're nice and bite-sized 
So if you want to support the show, currently I'm saving up for a new video camera. So if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you so much. But if you want to support the show and help me afford a new video camera that's a bit higher quality, then please consider subscribing to my Patreon or go over to coffee ko-fi.com slash genuine chit chat. And if you give a one-off donation of even one pound, I will still send you a couple episodes of Afterthoughts. But that's going to be enough from me. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, my friends, I will talk to you next week with either the Adam Christopher conversation or Clone Wars conversations. I think it's going to be the Adam Christopher chat because I've got that recorded and I'm very, very excited to release that. But make sure you subscribe if you haven't already, share the show and do all those usual things. I hope you have a wonderful time and I'll speak to you then. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit chat and also the host and creator of Star Wars comics and canon found on the Comics in Motion podcast. Mike Burton.